If you go back to the year 2001 and 2002, a lot of the conversation was about terrorism instance, you know, potential instances of global terrorism and museums as quote unquote soft targets. Probably the bigger threat to museums in the decade that followed was the financial crisis. We like to look at our security team and at, at our safety and security floor leaders really together uh, as what we've started calling the zero responders. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Dr. Samuel J. Redman is the professor of history and the director of the public history program at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Dr. Sam, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you gave a presentation at the National Conference on Cultural Property Protection titled The Art of Resilience, and it was about museums and resilience in the face of crisis, uh, and it was based on your book, uh, The Museum, A Short History of Crisis and Resilience. Tell us about that. Sure. So uh, I gave a presentation just before the pandemic really hit the United States uh, on, a, on a panel of historians uh, thinking about museum history, which is a topic I've been thinking about and writing about for, for some time. I, I started working in museums a number of years ago, but in becoming a historian, I, I, I kept thinking about museums and their history. And then the pandemic hit. And uh, like a lot of people, I started thinking about past crisis moments and uh, moments like the 1918 influenza epidemic. And I was shocked to find that not very much had been written about museums and how they had confronted these crisis moments. So that's really what, uh, what the, the genesis of the book, my, my looking at those museum crisis moments over the past century or more. What are some of the big recent themes uh, that you guys have dealt with as far as crisis? COVID certainly comes to mind, but there's other things like uh, all this vandalism going on. Even last week, somebody did some vandalism right in public. I mean, this is crazy times for museums. Sure. So one, a, a couple of themes uh, really jumped out to me in terms of studying these stories. Um, one of the themes that jumps out is uh, that it was rarely just one thing. So like when I looked back at various crisis moments, what surprised me in, in one way was how different crisis moments sort of came together at, at about the same time. Um, so in, in recent times, probably 90 to 95% of museums, according to some estimates, at least in the United States, shut down during the, the crisis uh, or the, the, the COVID uh, quarantine uh, uh, period uh, and having to figure out how to reopen, having to figure out how to pivot online. Um, and then also, of course, there was a racial reckoning happening and uh, uh, conversations happening about uh, statues and museum exhibits and, and how history is remembered or, or not remembered. Um, and, and those sort of moments coincided. But if you go back a, about 100 years ago and you look at the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic, uh, there was also uh, an, an economic uncertainty at the end of the First World War where uh, there was a, a real uh, you know, economic challenges in that era. And it was also a high tide of white supremacist like mob violence against black Americans, including uniformed black uh, uh, veterans that were returning from the First World War uh, who were attacked in northern cities like New York and Chicago. Um, so, you know, when you look back at that era, you see museum uh, attendance numbers going down. Um, but there was this whole uh, array of factors coming together. 
Uh, and just one more anecdote uh, on that earlier, that 100 year ago uh, uh, period, is that uh, museum directors, when I was reading the, the, the history files, they kept saying that the weather was really bad, especially on the weekends when they expected a lot of visitors to be able to come. And I sort of brushed this off as, okay, maybe they didn't want to talk about the influenza epidemic. Well, when I went back and looked back at historical weather data, it turned out the weather really was quite bad a century ago. There were some unusually bad winters around 1918 through the early 1920s. Um, so in some ways, that echoes a lot of what, what's happening today, right? This um, uh, epidemic that's happening, as well as a racial uh, reckoning and, and racial unrest, as well as changes in, in weather and, and weather patterns, right? Um, this is a, an example from an earlier chapter, but when uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy both took place, uh, a number of museum staffers uh, were holed up, in some cases with their families, at, for example, the New Orleans Museum of Art or the Whitney Museum in New York City when those disasters were taking place. So this is not like some abstract conversation we're having, right? This is like a very real uh, and tangible story for, for museums and security professionals and cultural institutions today. Now, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like as a security practitioner in the traditional, traditional vertical markets, I've been in that space a long time, as well as in the cyberspace, my brain right now, as you speak, is redefining what resilience means as it pertains to museums. I might have thought originally it has to do with the best cameras, the best delays, the best protection systems, you know, physical or cybersecurity stuff. But really, resilience in the museum business means keeping up and running. That's a big component, isn't it? Sure. And, uh, you know, another thing that, that surprised me uh, of course, when you when you get into uh, periods of, of economic distress, uh, there are staffers that are that are laid off, and um, you know there there are periods where more staffers are, are brought in, uh, and uh, you know the museum also, of course, has to has to change, and, and there are security elements that are are uh, really critical beyond uh, staff, but. Uh, time and time again, I came back to uh, staffers as being core in terms of keeping the museums going. Um, and then also, uh, again, you know, another thing that, that surprised me a great deal uh, in terms of the resiliency aspect of, of this was that uh, museums occasionally needed to be quite creative in terms of how they uh, addressed problems and, and changes. We think about museums, you know, maybe sometimes they're in a century old building and they have paintings or, or objects in them that, that may be hundreds of years old. There's sort of a almost a conservatism or, a, a you know, they, they almost seem as though they're, they're encased in amber and they're unchanging. And that's sort of their, their power in some sense. But in reality, museums are changing all the time and having to face um, changing cultural ideas, changing desires from their visitors, but also changing threats. So an example of that is a story that I tell in the book, but uh, that some people may remember. Um, some of the wildfires in, in California and in Southern California over the last couple of years becoming especially bad, including a series of fires that came to be called the Getty Fires because they came so close to the Getty Institution. So if it wasn't for the landscape management team at the Getty and elsewhere in that area, other cultural institutions like the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, 
um, that were convinced to hire a, a, a people to bring in teams of goats to clear brush. Um, and I kind of would love to be a fly in the wall at that meeting where, where someone told the board of the Getty, like, hey, we need to, to hire some, you know, brush eating goats to come in uh, and clear out some of the, the areas around the museum. But uh, a lot of fire professionals, uh, firefighting professionals think that that saved these institutions. The, the fact that they uh, were, were able to uh, uh, beat back those uh, those fires uh, was was in no small part because of this creative thinking. A lot of us, people who think about museums from, from their security, uh, from just sort of the, the uh, journalists that write about it, critics, uh, historians, and, and other thinkers, they, they, it's, it's really difficult to figure out uh, uh, what's coming around the bend. Um, sort of future casting or predicting the future um, is, is shockingly difficult, uh, right, in terms of what threats are, are around the bend. If you go back to the year 2001 and 2002, a lot of the conversation was about terrorism instance, you know, potential instances of global terrorism and museums as quote unquote soft targets. Probably the bigger threat to museums in the decade that followed was the financial crisis. You said something rather fascinating, that a museum has difficulty predicting future behavior because a lot of it does not get into looking at the history of the museum. It's almost like an oxymoron because the history is defined by, a museum is defined by history, right? So you think they would be the best subgroup to look at this backwards and forwards, literally. So I guess the question that arises out of that then, based on your studies, is who owns resiliency? We can take resiliency and put it into the security sector, and we'll be resilient as far as devices, technology, plans, uh, all that kind of stuff. We can do a pretty good job of that. But again, the overall museum must have resiliency into its operating system. So this is a, this is an interesting dilemma to me. Who would you say owns resiliency in a museum? I mean, it is everybody, but is there somebody that drives it better than others? Well, yeah, I would say for for me, what what I, I first of all, I love this question and thinking about this question, and I don't know that I have a, a totally definitive answer, but. It to me is a question about institutions and people, not just you know institutions or people, and um, within these the sort of uh, uh, individuals who are taking part in the story, uh, an aspect of of the creative thinking that we were talking about, learning how to to sort of think through issues creatively, um, but then also just leadership questions as as well, and to to me. Um, you know, some of those leadership questions almost are, are they can be sort of counterintuitive, uh, you know, that a good leader isn't just uh, focused on, on talking. Uh, a, a good leader, right, is uh, uh, especially adept at listening. So listening to the needs and wants of, of the community. Um, you know, and again, I, I don't want this to come off as like abstract sort of almost touchy-feely in terms of uh, thinking about, you know, something as concrete as museum security. In the 1970s, for example, uh, controversies around a museum exhibit uh, called Harlem on My Mind at the Metropolitan Museum of Art resulted uh, quite probably in about 12 or 13 uh, uh, famous works of art, including a Rembrandt, 
being vandalized, being uh, scratched possibly with a knife or another sharp object. And conservators were able to repair all of those paintings, but it was just one indication that you know, the museum will serve as a site of, of political uh, action, and uh, sometimes that can have direct threat to the collections. But then also, as we saw in a recent example at the MoMA last year, that uh, frontline staffers, uh, people who are taking tickets and security officers, can themselves be targets of uh, threats of, of violence and um, you know, intimidation and, and, and other sorts of, uh, uh, factors. So there's a, like, like we've said, there's a lot that goes into this. It's a complicated topic. Um, but one that I don't think enough historians have looked at seriously over, over time. And it's also just interesting to look at these different examples in different times and places and how they managed, uh, the, the, the choppy waters of the great depression or world war II. Uh, or this 1970 art strike and, and so forth. Well, I think you touched on something interesting to me. It made me define the problem this way. So goes the culture, so goes the society, right? And if you're going to attack the culture direct directly, where better place to attack a culture than a museum? And I might argue that each museum has a local culture and then, of course, the grander culture. I might have antiquities from Egypt over here in Los Angeles. So I'm looking at two cultures, if you think about it that way, or multiple cultures of all the world in one museum. And I think it's problematic that we have people, you know, throwing soup on paintings in the middle of the day. And first, it's problematic that it's happening. Second, it's problematic that they're getting away with it. And I wonder if people are looking at this, that you do, that this is a deep, deep issue this isn't a matter of security. It's not a matter of vandalism. It's not a simple crime. This is attack on culture all around the world. And I'm just wondering if you think people are catching on to that concept and looking at this entirely differently. And instead of isolated incidents, there's a history of museums being attacked for cultural and social statements. And it seems to be more of it than ever before. Yeah, and I uh, definitely became interested in you know. So let's let's name a couple of of examples that are sort of precursors to the 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 recent examples that you're you're mentioning. Um, so a couple of examples include the 1970 art strike, uh, where uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the the Guggenheim in New York City became sites of protests, especially about the war in Vietnam, but about a number of different topics. And it influenced and impacted the art that was being shown in, in the walls. Um, but a lot of the museums tried to carry on as though it was business as usual. Um, and I, I think they, over the course of that, lost some credibility, especially with the artists' communities in, in New York City, um, as well as art critics and, and, and others who were paying attention. You know, so it may not have impacted their numbers immediately uh, the, the way you know you might think but it it probably did some reputational damage to museums um, and you know similarly uh, the Enola Gay episode the B29 super fortress airplane that dropped the first atomic weapon used in warfare uh, it, it, over Japan uh, at the end near the end of World War II uh, was the site of heated controversy in the 1990s. Uh, where uh, conserv especially conservative protesters and veterans groups wanted to see a certain sort of story presented uh, in the exhibits. Uh, when a draft uh, uh, exhibit 
text was leaked. They were were quite unhappy. Um, but then, you know, ultimately, when the the plane went on display, it was uh, anti nuclear protesters who threw fruit at the at the at the airplane. So it was controversial for for from uh, many different directions, right? And that even though the museum tried to strip away all basically interpretive material and just sort of give the description of how much the plane weighed and you know where it was constructed and how long the wings were. Um, uh, it, it still was the site of controversy, right? So, uh, you know, the, the, the lessons are, are sort of muddled and difficult and challenging to pick up on, but I think they include uh, doing a better job of listening to the community during those controversies and leaning into them uh, and, you know, hopefully opening up some sort of platform for larger conversation about things like the environment and threats and challenges to the environment. Um, let's be honest, too, like these are a lot of beautiful paintings depicting the environment and depicting possible changes in the environment and conversations that we can and should be having um, that, you know, uh, I don't think maybe I'm I'm overly naive and uh, uh, optimistic to think that by opening up space for those conversations that this will sort of solve that that as a a, a threat to the preservation of these amazing paintings. But um, I don't think, on the other hand, just sort of uh, clutching our pearls and um, saying that this is terrible and, and sort of clamping down security-wise is uh, the uh, sort of reaction that, that will uh, ultimately, you know, uh, diminish this as, a, as a, a, an issue. I think that you need to do some listening and, and uh, you know, creating of a space for conversation and platform, uh, as difficult as that may be, frankly. Um, uh, with people who are on uh, vastly different sides of uh, a conversation, so yeah, I do think it's it's uh, the, the another thing factor in this story is that museums are uh, surveys still suggest that museums are considered uh, a trusted source of information and that they um, you know that in an era of fake news and uh, disinformation and, and willful misinformation. Uh, uh, that I think is important that museums again can sort of lean into that as a as a strength, um, and yet you know there are calls for for museums to to you know they aren't they they, they never truly have been neutral spaces right they're always an expression of some scientific interests or point of view by virtue of what things that they select and and how they present it they're they're never really neutral in terms of what you know how they how they operate so can we be more transparent in uh in in that story um yeah i don't i don't think that the current sort of wave of of protesters is is arguing that museums have gone sort of too far in in that way i think you know um like you know there's just there's some controversy that can't be avoided. For instance, the uh, Teddy Roosevelt sculpture outside of the American Museum of Natural History, which famously depicts Teddy Roosevelt on a horse and a black man and a Native American man sort of at uh, the ground level uh, as though in a lower or subservient position. Uh, there were both protests and then, you know, Fox News sponsored counter protests uh, to try to save the sculpture. Um, and here the museum had tried to be transparent about the debates and, and put on special exhibits and signage. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it, it wasn't enough. The, the 
the rising tide of calls for change and removal of of that statue was was just too much. But yeah, and it, you know, just to put a one more point on this this sort of idea of is this a, a threat to museums? Um, you know, I, I would also like to see other materials from behind the scenes and storage and, and other stories come to the fore, right? When you go to the Smithsonian, uh, when you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, when you go even to your small regional museums in some, time, in some cases, you're seeing about 1% of the total collection. Um, so, you know, what more can we do to learn about and see the other 99% of uh, these stories and, and information and, and all of these other uh, amazing things? Um, by shifting our perspective a little bit uh, or, uh, you know, turning towards other things, maybe we can, at the end of the day, learn much more. Excellent, excellent points, my friend. Dr. Samuel J. Redmond, Professor of History and the Director of Public History Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I, I think you put a fine point in this, and you said that the museums are still considered one of the trusted sources. That keeps me uh, hopeful. Uh, let's watch that number. Let's watch that metric, because if that ever dips below trust, that our cultures are not trusted, all of our cultures together. It, it's problematic. Fascinating conversation. Uh, I'd love to speak to you some more about this. Anytime I want to come on the show, you give me a call because I think this is kind of an overlooked, important vertical market that we really should focus on to get a feeling on where society's going. Thanks again for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Jan Bialik, CPP, is the Security Administrator for the City of Newport News. Mr. Yan, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. Today's topic is a city safety and security floor leader program, similar to a floor warden program. We're going to discuss that. And this is part of the overall theme for December for Security Management Highlights, which is resiliency. And of course, if you have a good floor warden program, you are resilient, no doubt about it. Jan, let's start by giving us an overview of your responsibility and how you came to this position, because these leadership positions are something super critical to people's infrastructures nowadays. Sure, so I am the security administrator for a medium-sized city, the city of Newport News, Virginia. Uh, we're a population of about 180,000 and a workforce of uh, right around 4,000 people. Um, I'm responsible for the critical infrastructure security for our city facilities, everything from the pump stations all the way up to city hall, uh, everything from access control to video surveillance uh, and uniform security officers. Um, so we have been looking for, for ways to engage with our employee workforce. You know, we look at employees as a force multiplier. Uh, of course, there's a lot of anxiety amongst employees uh, with everything that's going on in the world. Um, and we had a cadre of employees who were interested uh, in, in volunteering and, and helping and, and, and learning, but they didn't have the resources or the skills or the knowledge to be able to really be effective. And so we took the floor warden program and we, we, we amped it up. Where do you draw most of your volunteers from? We try to geographically space them so that we have uh, volunteers from every floor in a, in a building or so we can have people from uh, that way. We're, we're kind of we're, we're spacing out where these folks are coming from so that the messages that we're getting from them represent the organization and the messages we're pushing back are getting back to the organization. Let's talk about active shooter planning. Not that you can always, planning is probably a poor word, but uh, response is probably a better word. When we look at that, that could cross over between your immediate city facilities, a public space, 
a private business. It can all be kind of mixed together. The focus on the floor warden program is to get people out safely, secure them, give them places to go and meet and things like that. But if we get in a situation where there's something tragic as an active shooter, how does leadership interact at this point? Is there some sort of hierarchy? Uh, you know, when I was at the studio, I was the guy, right? And I had my leaders underneath me that did it. But we were contained into ourselves inside a facility where nobody else was going to come in there and do something. It was up to us. When we have this crossover stuff, where do we, where do employees look to leadership if something like that happens? We have a very robust and very active um, senior leadership team at the city. You know, Newport News is uh, only about a 45-minute car ride from Virginia Beach, uh, only about 40 minutes away from Chesapeake, where, uh, you know, two two mass shootings in the last few years that are right here in our local communities. Um so we have taken a pretty proactive stance to how we would respond to active shooter events, and it goes all the way from the city manager down to individual employees. Um, in terms of leadership, uh, we have a you know deputy emergency coordinator, we have a fire chief and a police chief, we have the sheriff's office, we have the security team, and we work very closely together. So again, Newport News is very big about you know leadership by committee and, and kind of working as part of a team. Um, I have sat on a, on a number of unified command uh, operations where, uh, you know, whether police is running it or fire is running it or emergency management is running it. Um, sometimes one of the assistant city managers will act as the incident commander, but there will be representatives from all of the public safety disciplines in it. Uh, the nice thing about the way we've designed this program uh, with the safety and security floor leaders is it, it's designed to to fill in the gap between when an incident begins and when professional rescuers get on scene. So we know that within three, four, five minutes, you'll have police on scene, fire and EMS will start to arrive, emergency management will take over. Um, if we have security in the facility, which most of our facilities we do, security officers will be integrated with that response. They will be in the initial phases, uh, phases of that response before other responders even arrive. Um, but in those first moments of an incident, it'll be the employees. The employees are the ones that are going to be that initial patient, that initial victim that, that, that has to you know, resolve what they're going to do. And so it, it kind of escalates from there. And so we've pushed to have as much control as we could with the employees. We um, have a mandatory craze training, which is civilian response to active shooter events that all of our employees, the entire workforce goes through. Um, so that we are providing the tools that and the skills that we can uh, at the base level, and that is supported all the way up through the through the senior leadership up to the city manager. You said something interesting to me that I, I never really considered in all the years I did this. Your staff is really the default first responder phase, the first 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 responder. They're there first on scene. They have the intelligence originally. They have the information originally. Yes, they could be part of the victim and evacuation group, but on the other hand, they also also be part of the response group in providing information to the first responders that get there two or three minutes later. So I, I think that's a very interesting perspective that I haven't really heard. Yeah, and, and I can't I can't coin the term. Uh, I've heard it used before, but we like to look at our security team and at, at our safety and security floor leaders really together uh, as what we've started calling the zero responders. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, so I, I consistently tell our law enforcement partners that 
our security team and our safety and security floor leaders are going to be at the site of the incident before the incident occurs and certainly before traditional first responders arrive and they're going to be there long after our first responders have left and the incident is is resolved they're going to be there picking up the pieces once everyone else has departed so that's part of the emphasis of the safety and security floor leader program is we wanted to create an environment where, again, we're addressing not just the skills and the knowledge that would be necessary, but also addressing the anxiety. We're, we're helping the employees know, you know, what would they expect in a critical incident, whether it's a fire, whether it's an active threat, um, you know, how would they uh, how would they expect security officers to respond to the incident? How would they expect law enforcement, fire and EMS to respond to the incident? Um, what could they do and what could their, their role be in helping to save colleagues? Um, and, and we look at that both, you know, pre-bang and post-bang. So what can they do before an incident occurs in terms of reporting structure? Can they talk to HR? Can they, you know, what kind of things should be reported and who they should be reported to and how? Um, and then during the incident itself and in, in, in the post-bang, you know, what would they do to keep themselves alive? Um, in those critical, you know, moments, minutes, hours, uh, as as first responders get into the scene, as they try to secure the scene, as we try to get medical services in um, into the scene, I hear a large component of pre-incident prevention here. In other words, our security forces. I ran a lot of guard companies and guards for many years. You and I understand that component. That's part of our job is to observe and report. But when you bring the floor warden people into this, or the safety people as civilians, and they're participating in observe and report, you've just raised your level of intelligence here. So what how, What would you say your your percentage of uh, prevention is, is built into this, pre-incident prevention, let's say? Well, I, it, it's, it's obviously difficult to measure, but uh, I would tell you, we believe that uh, an ounce of prevention, right? So anything we can do to to disrupt um, or de-escalate a situation with with the existing staff that's there um, is gonna is gonna pay out dividends on the other side of it. So we focus tremendously on on giving our, our employees the tools to be able to to recognize the signs of of uh, suspicious behavior, to recognize the signs of you know pre-attack kind of surveillance and things like that. Um, we we work with them again as a working group as a as a committee. So when we have these meetings, one of the things we always discuss is, is there anything going on that we should know about? Is there anything that's that's concerning you? Anything we want to talk through? Um, we just recently repaved uh, a parking lot at one of our city facilities because folks came up in the call and said, you know, um, I almost got into a car crash leaving work the other day because there's uh, there's no stop sign or people can't see it. People are driving you know crazy through the parking lot. And so we work with engineering to, to be able to address that. We work with our safety team to be able to, to address that. So um, I, I think that as a whole, the city is very safety conscious. We look at things and we kind of go, what can we do to, to preempt it? Um, because obviously, if you get to the post bang, if you're getting to where the incident has already started to occur, there's already going to be damage. There's already going to be potential for injuries. Um, so uh, when we have a fired alarm, uh, you know, we work through what went right, what went wrong. Uh, we can access video to be able to walk through, you know, did people evacuate to the right location? Uh, and then we can review that with the team. Um, so I, I think prevention is always the focus. It's always the goal. But realistically, we also have to provide them the, the tools to be able to respond should something occur. Um, 
And so we look at them as that force multiplier. We look at them as an extension of our security team. Well, I think this is brilliant. It's a long way off from when I was started doing this uh, 20, 25 years ago, and you had a threat assessment meeting to discuss the potential bad guy that's coming to the studio to do something. And I used to say, listen, folks, if we're having a meeting about this guy, it's too late. We didn't get in front of him, right? That's the whole secret. And what I found was when you had the civilian population participate, they really stepped up. They really came up and participated almost in a better way than my security forces because to them it was new, fresh, exciting, and they really wanted to help. Are you finding that this model is is growing? Because, you know, there's always the lawyers are in charge of HR. The lawyers are in charge of these things. HR is in charge of them. Facilities is in charge. And, you know, it's all secret squirrel and confidential. Listen, I say the more the merrier. Open participation, open knowledge is going to create a prevention program that's resilient. Are you finding uh, that this is growing in population, your model that you're building? Well, there's certainly a lot of debate that that went in, especially early on when we were trying to expand this program. I think probably among some of the most hotly debated topics were, are we going to increase anxiety amongst employees? Are we going to scare employees? How much is too much to share with them? Um, and then what happens if we end up uh, educating the next potential attacker? What if we have an insider threat and somebody's in here now, you know, learning what, what we're going to do as our plans. So I, I think that that's always a debate that that's healthy, that has to be had. Um, we were very cautious in what information was shared. Uh, obviously, we're not sharing entire security plans with folks. Um, but we, we did find that, just like you had suggested, that the volunteers the volunteers were there because they really wanted to to do things to improve their their work environment and the safety around their their colleagues and so they already had the will to to learn and and to and to be successful and all we had to do was give them the right skill set um in addition to what they were normally doing as part of their job in order to be successful so when you have a will it's a lot easier to then take those folks and work with them um so uh we are we are interested in expanding the program to some of our other facilities across the city, uh, city-owned facilities, so not uh, still not private sector. But uh, we have we have been very successful within the places where we have adopted this program. Well, I've always said all security is personal, all security is local, all security is now. And when you empower your media group around you to act individually through training, awareness, and group participation, You've just created a multiplier that's really resilient and sustainable. So I, I think this is really a great idea, Jan, and I think you're on the right track, my friend. So thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, and uh, let's stay in touch. I'd like to know some of your updates. 